0: Hello and welcome to episode 28 of Command Space. I am your host, Mike Hurley. Today I have a very special episode for you. I am joined by Mr. John Roderick of the Long Winters and the Roderick on the Line podcast, We recorded this episode a couple of weeks ago, as John is an extremely busy man, and I had to catch him when he wasn't touring all over the globe with his fantastic musical stylings. Um, So we've got this special episode for you, and and I hope that you enjoy it very much. But just before we jump into the episode, I'd like to very quickly thank our sponsor for this week, and they are, of course, the fine folks over at Squarespace.com, who give you absolutely everything you need to make an amazing website. Squarespace gives you a fully hosted, completely managed environment for creating and maintaining your your home online, whether that be a website, blog, or portfolio. The new Squarespace has arrived, Squarespace version 6, which we've been talking about for a little while now. Let me tell you again, in, c- in case you are a crazy person who have not signed up already, to go over and check out their beautiful new templates, all featuring responsive web design, their drag-and-drop layout engine, which allows you to create pages in seconds, where you can drop in blocks of content, such as photos, videos, text, social media content, and much more. They have beautiful code... Everything is amazing for SEO. The structure is fantastic. They integrate the entire thing. You get iOS apps, statistics and analytics built in, award-winning 24-7 customer support, a blog importer to bring over your current blog and projects, and you can easily set up sharing and syncing with your social media accounts. I want you to go and try all this out for two reasons. One, because it's awesome, and two, because it helps support Command Space and 70 decibels and allows us to continue doing what you enjoy each week. There's no credit card required to try out Squarespace. Just go do this for me now. Go to squarespace.com forward slash 70 decibels and start your free trial. Squarespace starts at $10 a month for the standard plan, $20 a month for the limited plan. If you sign up for a year, you'll get 20% off. If you sign up for two, you'll get 25% off. And use the offer code 70DECIBELS2 at checkout for an extra 10% off. Thank you to Squarespace. Thank you to you. And let's get on with the show. And I am joined today by the man, the myth, the legend, that is John Roderick. Hi, John.
1: Hello, Mike, and nice to be here. It's great to have you. You have a very posh accent. I am a British man. Well, there are a lot of British accents, as you know, some of them more posh than others.
0: Yeah, I'm blessed. And I know
1: that to accuse someone of being posh in the UK is a terrible affront, so I'm sorry, I take it back.
0: It's okay, I I, I take it. I I grew up in um, East London, Mm-hmm. My whole life, and was always considered to have less of a Cockney accent than my peers. So it's something that I have lived with. It's a cross I have bared my entire life. So I'm happy.
1: <laughs> I'm happy to accept it. Did you live in in uh, earshot of this uh, this bell tower that is supposed to represent the, the Cockney area? Uh, the bow bells? <laughs> did I did I get that story wrong? I <laughs> thought there was a, there was a church bell that if you could hear the bell, <laughs> if you could hear the bells from this particular church then you could legitimately claim to be a cockney. I was uh, born
0: there in the hospital. It's it's called the Bow Bells. Mm -hmm. And I was born um, in Whitechapel Hospital, which is um, just outside Bow, and lived the majority of my life around that sort of area. So yes, I can claim to be a a true cockney.
1: Yeah, I don't believe it. You sound (laughs) like you went to (laughs) Eton.
0: Yes, that too. (laughs) So this is uh, already a very different episode. Mm-hmm. To, the, to the usual types of services
1: of this show, I mean. Yeah, I'm sorry, I haven't yet spoken about my personal digital assistant, but we can get we can segue to that immediately. Before we do that,
0: why don't you why don't you tell our listeners what you like to be known for? What I like to be known
1: for? Mm-hmm. Um, well, I like to be known as the one true Christ <laughs> who has a, who has arrived on Earth to shepherd us into the post apocalypse where. The believers in me are guaranteed eternal life Mm -hmm. and the doubters (laughs) spend eternity in torment that's what i like to be known as right Um, Uh, unfortunately the group of people that 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 so far have accepted that premise it's a very small group centered here around my house in seattle (laughs) uh i can count them on one hand but it's early days
0: Okay. I think what, I,
1: what I'm mostly known for <laughs> is that uh, I was a, a rock, well, rather, I am a rock musician, performer, and uh, I have a band called The Long Winters, and that was a, that, I, I was a member of the Seattle indie rock scene for uh, the 90s and the 2000s, and now, more recently, I am known as a podcaster and a a Twitterer and sort of a ubiquitous internet presence in some small corners of the internet. If you are looking for me, you will find me. But, um, as you know, there, you know, Twitter is, is a thousand points of light. So you can be an, an avid Twitterer and, and never encounter me, but, but I'm there and my podcast is, is, uh, breaking all kinds of podcast records. Mm hmm. Uh, every day, we ascend to new heights. Every day, another million. That's right. So uh, I'm now. Uh, my career has become multifaceted to the point of um, of being uh, kind of hard to nail down because being a podcaster, or uh, and I'm also, uh, you know, I also have, have a regular column in uh, what was formerly a Village Voice publication the seattle weekly uh, so all these things rock musician podcaster journalist tweeter rock contour they are not they don't necessarily follow from one another um, a lot of rock musicians are inarticulate barely literate in some cases i'm thinking specifically of gallagher brothers uh yep but um but i am <clears throat> kind of as I get a little older now uh, my my uh, notoriety is spread across several platforms
0: it's changed a lot and we're going that 's one of the things i 'm going to talk to you about in a little bit more detail later on in the show um but the first thing i I, I want to kind of get out of the way is the technology mm. section because mm-hmm. yeah this is a te- generally a technology show, and we 're going to talk a bit a bit more about the music in a bit, but I kind of want to just for you, how does technology fit into your everyday life? I mean, the usual people that I have on this show, they work with computers, they create websites and such. I mean, I, I know from listening to Roderick on the line that you um, suffer in great frustration with your iPhone. I mean, how, how does technology fit for you?
1: Well, technology at a certain point, actually pretty early on in my rock and roll life became a um, it, it was clear that if I understood how to use a four-track tape recorder, for example, I would be able to demo my music, and I would be able to have cassette tapes of my songs that I could pass around. And and uh, the technology, the the interest in technology that I needed to master the art of four-track recording, I didn't, I didn't naturally have. Um, my first computer was an IBM PC with 64k of memory and two floppy disk drives. But uh, very quickly, my friends who were programming in BASIC and I diverged paths, and I spent most of my time on the computer um, using the WordStar program, which was an early word processor. I liked the computer because, but I but I used it as a glorified typewriter. I was I wasn't interested in programming. And a lot of my friends in the late 70s and early 80s that were went on to lucrative careers in computers. But I was – I had one. I just didn't – I didn't have that interest. And I wasn't interested in learning to use a four-track. And that inhibited me as a a rock musician. Well, as time has gone on and more and more of – and the the internet arrived – the Long Winters, for instance, did not have a website for a long time because I couldn't figure out why you would want one. And when we did, I didn't understand how to maintain it. And, um, and so with every evolution of technology, I have always been behind and have always expressed kind of disinterest in it that is, that's mostly fear of it. And, I, and it has inhibited my career and, and, and in many ways inhibited my life the entire way. Hmm. Um, I don't have – although I, have, I, I practice all these different forms of culture creation, I do not have my own internet store. And if I did, it would earn me some number of hundreds of dollars a week just selling T-shirts with my face on it for instance because there surprisingly there is a market for that um usually among girls between the ages of 17 and 24 niche market um, they they have a tendency to want pictures of me on their t-shirts i don't know why it's not my fault but i don't sell those things because i don't understand or rather i i fear to learn uh the process of just setting up a simple store and getting those that that machine working um When the iPhone came out, I felt a great relief because my phone and my computer would finally have a shared platform and I felt like that was the problem before, that I would have something on my phone and to get it to my computer was this multi-stage process that most of the time I gave up halfway through. Now I had an iPhone, I had a computer that was a Mac, the things talked to one another, this was great. But as I started to use the tools and they solved my last generation of problems, they created a whole new world of problems that I think I, I think can be reduced to the fact that because of science fiction and because our imaginations are way ahead of what reality is, I can imagine an iPhone and a Macintosh computer doing amazing things. But those devices are actually at the very dawn of their evolution. We are at the dawn of the internet and of smartphones, and we are—if—if if computers are analogous to powered flight, we are four and a half years after the Wright brothers flew at Kitty Hawk. You know, we are—we are still flying airplanes made out of bicycle parts. And I look at my phone every day and it fails me. And I look at my computer every day and it fails me. The internet fails me. And because my imagination is so far ahead, I feel like, come on, can't we? I mean, I was driving in southwestern Washington yesterday and I'm looking at Google Maps on my iPhone. And I'm looking at Google Maps because the iPhone map application is useless to the point of personal insult but google has changed their map platform now too anyway i'm out in western southwestern washington which is a kind of an unmapped area anyway and this map program is telling me that i am a blue a flashing blue dot in the in the middle of no in the middle of a sea of nothing and for years i traveled this part of the state with no smartphone at all but the fact that i have this device and it and i can imagine it being capable of telling me where I am and it fails to be able to do it is more of an affront than just having a paper map more of an affront than having no map and just and reading street signs for the love of god
0: It's because like you know it has the capability, but with it just being out of reach because yeah. it's failing in some way it's, it does yeah. make it more maddening than if it wasn't there
1: altogether it's maddening and 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 i you know i 've never had a uh, a Microsoft phone or a Google phone or whatever the, these Droid phones. I've never had. I've never had one that had a, the additional complexity of not interacting with a Mac computer or the additional complexity of being designed by Steve Ballmer and reflecting his imagination rather than Steve Jobs's. I don't. I don't like either one of those guys, but Steve Jobs at least you know, he, he's got black turtlenecks. He's a chic guy, a chic nerd instead of the Steve Ballmer like football jock nerd. In any case, technology and I have have a fraught relationship and particularly now that much of my public life is transpiring on the internet, exclusively on the internet. My podcast and my, my Twitter life are are internet-based. I am for the first time inextricably married to these gizmos. I can no longer say I'm just a guy with an acoustic guitar and I don't care. I have to use these things now. And I, and when I don't have my phone, I'm searching frantically for it. Where did I put it? You know, I, I have, it has infected me and in some, and, and and I don't resent it because I love the internet. I love Twitter. I love this, this world I have access to but but i really feel like i feel like a uh like a surgeon that is being forced to wear welding gloves i just it does not have the precision and the acuity that i that i dream of
0: um being a frequent listener of roderick on the line your show which we'll talk about as well later on in the program um i know that you have in your life um taken many walking trips throughout Europe. It's a, mm-hmm. an incredible thing to hear you describe these stories. And, and I wonder if you feel that having something like an iPhone, well, it definitely would have affected this experience, but do you think it would have ruined it or, or made it better?
1: Well, it's a question I've asked myself a lot. I didn't even take a disposable camera uh, on many of these trips. And so there's no photographic evidence of it at all and for for many years i i clung to the principle that if you are taking a picture of something you are failing to see it with your eyes you are trying to record it rather than experience it and this was kind of this was like a punk rock principle that i was trying to live according to um so i didn't i didn't take a camera and at the time I was, I was liberated from feeling like I've got to I've got to get this camera to the to the post office and and mail it home, or I've got to develop these pictures before they're ruined by, you know, the by the by the fact that I'm caught in a rainstorm, or you know, it was just one less thing that could break that I didn't that I didn't have a any way of taking pictures, and so particularly on some of the longer walks like like you're you're referring to a walk i did from amsterdam to istanbul which was a walk of many many months and on that trip i didn't i didn't have a watch you know i had no (laughs) i had no thing that was powered by batteries i had no mechanical devices i had a compass and um and a sleeping bag and so just by way of example, at a certain point in Hungary, I, I I made some friends with the local kids in Budapest, and as I was leaving Budapest after, a, after spending a couple of weeks there, one of the kids, who was a law student, he informed me that he had elected himself to join me for part of the walk. He was going to walk out of Budapest with me, and we were going to walk to the Romanian border together was his idea because he had never, he had never even seen his own country this way. And listening to my stories, he was curious. So off we go, we leave Budapest in the morning and we start to walk and he has a watch, a simple wristwatch, which he cannot help, but check. And so all of a sudden all of a sudden our our journey which up until that point you know i i would wake up in the morning i would walk until the sun went down but now we're walking from town to town and he has a he has a watch so he's able to time our progress he's able to know if we're making good time or bad he's able to you know calculate our speed and and then he and then he's able to say well we're not going to make it to this town before 5 Unless we really pick up the pace. And, and in a few hours, the fact that he had a watch completely changed the rhythm that I had established over months and months of walking, which was, is it, you know, is it noon-ish? Then maybe I should sit under a tree and have an apple. Is the sun going down? Then maybe I should look for a place to sleep. But these were the only time questions I had. So to think of a wristwatch as a, as a psychological technology was very new to me. You know, it's, it, it, it's, it's the simplest, it's the most benign little machine you can have, but all of a sudden it was ordering my life in a, in a fascistic way that I, that I had, that I had been free of. And I very quickly, after about a day and a half, I said to this kid, you need to get on a train and go back to Budapest. You're a lovely man, and I wish you a long and happy life. But get away from me (laughs) because you're – these simple things, these simple ideas like we need to get there. We need to go. We are are late. I mean that's what a watch is there to tell you basically. You're late. And having a camera would have been a a variation on that theme. Like I didn't get that picture. I need to stop here and get this picture. I need to wait – I need to be over here to get the picture. I need to get this person or this horse in the picture. And not not having that, I was I was I I, I very quickly like lost all sense of that desire to compulsively record things. Now trying to picture a smartphone on that adventure, it wouldn't have been anything like it uh, uh, the adventure would have been completely and utterly different
0: it probably I, wouldn't have really been an adventure anymore
1: it would have been and i see this all the time because i continue to go on adventures and i have a smartphone right and you are broadcasting your adventure all the time to an audience mm-hmm. i take a picture of my phone i go look there's the back of zoe Deschanel's head send <laughs> and then 10 minutes later i go back to the phone and i read 25 replies from people that run the gamut of that's not zoe Deschanel's head to oh my god you're so lucky fave or whatever and you're, my my life is and the and the recording of it and the and the sharing of it becomes a becomes an end in itself a compulsive kind of behavior let alone the map program the 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 timekeeping, the – I mean I would have been – through no fault of my own and, and without it being my intention, I would have ended up being a documentarian and a social networker on what in fact was like a six-month-long completely solitary journey uh, that had no – where, where sharing was – played almost no role. And I honestly right now cannot tell you which is better because people say, you walked from Amsterdam to Istanbul. God, I can't wait to see the pictures. And I say, oh, I don't have any pictures. I didn't take any pictures. And you just see their eyes glaze over like, no pictures? Oh. What's wrong with you? Yeah, like, it must not have happened then. (laughs) You must be making it up. And I'm like, really? If I had a picture of me standing in front of a tree and I told you it was in Bulgaria, you would believe my story? But, but lacking that picture, like it just, it's, it's unreal to people. Um, so I don't know. I mean, honestly, the forced solitude and the, and the baton death march aspect of my six month walk across Europe, maybe it would have been, maybe it would have been better if I'd been tweeting it. Maybe I would have spent less time like huddled under a bush weeping, uh, but I, but it would have been a different animal. It would have been a completely different animal. I don't know if I would have wanted to do it.
0: Let's. That, I mean, you've, you've kind of given me the answer I was hoping for, really. Mm-hmm. Um, so thank you for that. I want to talk about. Let's talk about technology in the music industry, um, because I'm sure you, you know, you've you've seen the change um, in some ways. So like you've been involved in the music industry for for some years now. Mm-hmm. Do you think that you know sort of following on from the last point, do you think that technology as a whole helps or hinders the industry is Is it clear cut enough to say it does one or the other
1: well there's we've all been um, up in arms for the last ten years about this question uh, and i I have lived through it and i've seen it i've seen three or four different evolutions of it i mean when i first started playing music um we still were counting largely on a major label record business all through the grunge years and into the late 90s although there were plenty of bands like fugazi who had been self financing their tours and whatnot most bands and most bands in seattle hoped to at least get signed by sub-pop. That was the smallest label anyone could think of. You you really hoped to get signed by Warner Brothers or Sony or or BMG or whomever. EMI. Um, And then as those labels self-destructed and indie labels rose up out of the ashes, that felt like the first... Uh, incarnation of this evolution of technology indie labels were able to promote themselves and produce records and the, the, the proto internet played a role in it. The early blogs, the message boards, we counted on those things to promote our music in the absence of major labels, having millions of dollars to spend. And so even though the long winters didn't have a website, our early record, uh, our first record, was heavily promoted by word of mouth and by blogs and and LiveJournal and MySpace and Friendster and all these places. Um, and th- and that promotion f- filled that gap. It made it made us have we it enabled us to have a reach that even five years before you would have needed a large promotion budget and a team of people to, to achieve. But that got out of people's control, uh, pretty fast, particularly with Napster. Now, the thing we didn't expect was that no, no one would want to buy our records. They'd be out there for free. And that shocked and scared everyone. And it didn't really shock and scare me because the long winters are a cottage industry and I never expected to make $10 million a year making music. And as people started stealing my albums, well, I was earning money other ways and, and that isn't to defend stealing records, but just to say like, personally, it didn't affect me. Like maybe it did the guys in Metallica who, obviously, are living (laughs) hand-to-mouth now that people are stealing their albums.
0: We know that, right? It must be (laughs) so tough for them.
1: But the big change, the, the major change that I felt spiritually was that I came up playing music in clubs, and I started as the first of three bands on a Tuesday night, and I played many shows as the first of three bands on a Tuesday night until I was playing as first of three bands on a Thursday night, which was seemed like quite an evolution. And then I was playing second of three on a Tuesday night. And I played many shows there until I was second of three on a Thursday night. And then I was given my first headlining show on a Tuesday night. And I played a bunch of those until I was playing a headlining show on a Thursday night, at which point I had a hundred fans that came to every show. And then I was given my first opportunity to play first of three on a Friday night. And then I played a lot of those until I was second of three on a Friday night and then headlining a Friday night and then opening for a national band on a Saturday night. And, you know, this took me years to do. And I assumed that this was what This was everyone in music's shared experience because in indie rock in the early 2000s, we all had this experience. Every band, Modest Mouse and, you know, uh, my friends uh, in Keen from the United Kingdom played many Tuesday night opening slots before before they made a record, you know. So a few years ago, it became possible to put a video of yourself sitting in your bedroom playing the ukulele on YouTube and because of some combination of cuteness and naive quality and maybe songwriting acumen that that YouTube video would acquire a million views. And I was backstage at a show with a, with a fellow by the name of MC Frontalot, who is a, a nerd rapper and a, and, a, and a swell fellow, a great man. And he and I were just chatting backstage. And, and I said, boy, this club, it's just like a million black-painted, bleach-smelling bars I've been in my whole life. Isn't that right, Frontalot? And he kind of looked at me and said, you know, the first show I ever played was in front of 5,000 people at Comic-Con in Boston. And I got asked to play the show because I had put some videos of myself on the internet. And after that, I just always had an audience. And he never he never uh, met the succession of sleazy booking agents. He never met the, he never, you know, Wrestled with other bands for the the one bag of M and M's in the backstage room. I mean, he put some videos of himself rapping on the internet, and he was playing for thousands of people at his first show. And that's the the way that technology has most profoundly changed the game, because. Um, and and I think that that to a certain extent, that moment, the moment where you could point to somebody like Jonathan Colton or front a lot or some of these characters who came out and put some stuff on the internet and became bonafide rock stars as a result to a certain extent that moment has passed. And now there's, there's so much stuff on YouTube that one person can't really have that experience. But I mean, look at Gangnam Style. Well, it's got a billion views. Yeah, You couldn't, there's no way that you could not accomplish that with money. You could not, no record label in the world could have paid enough people to get a billion views of a thing so so for the first time it feels like my my ludditism or my agnosticism about putting stuff on the internet knowing how to have a web store knowing how to put youtube videos up it it feels now like i'm i'm genuinely uh I I'm off the road a little bit. Like I have not kept up with certain aspects of the technology, particularly around my music career. And it's conceivable that there are kids out there who would only discover me via YouTube and I'm just not communicating with them.
0: There are some some sort of some aspects of, of this where I mean, let me give you a – this this hopefully will try and illustrate my point a bit better. So there is one Long Winters album that in the United Kingdom I I am unable to find for purchase anywhere, Mm -hmm. Putting Mm -hmm. the Days to Bed. You can't
1: get Putting the Days to Bed in the United Kingdom. Cannot get it. That is infuriating to me.
0: It's not on iTunes. um, It's not on any of the streaming services. It's the only one. And I believe I went – Through the Long Winters site to a web store that holds them um, and put all my information into purchase. And it says, You cannot purchase this because of geographical restrictions. (laughs) So, take that, take that, you limey. (laughs) What about things like that? I mean, when you hear things like that, you know, because I'm sure, you know, that's because of maybe a record label deal or something somewhere. Do you feel that those sorts of things they hold back your music the industry you know what seem like quite short-sighted things that are done
1: well yeah that's what i mean by the fact that it feels like this whole our uh, our whole world of technology right now is in this uh this one horsepower motor with a bicycle chain era because most of the time when i go on to su- so when i follow a link to something uh Hey, you should read this article. follow this link. And I go to the link and then there's a pop-up that says, would you like to download our app? And it's like, I don't want to download your freaking app. I just want to read this article. And then, and then another thing pops up and says, you know, well, you don't have the right, you don't have the right uh, version of flash or, you know, flash is not supported on this phone. And you're just like, I throw my phone down in frustration so much. Now putting the days to bed was released in Europe on a Dutch label called Munich Records, if this isn't confusing enough. They are a Dutch label called Munich Records, (laughs) and also released in Spain on a Spanish label called Houston Party. Uh, But those labels had some kind of exclusivity about European territories, and then uh, Munich Records, because of, you know, for whatever reason... The record has presumably more or less gone out of print. It is not being supported by Munich. But my label here in the U.S., Barsook, couldn't be less interested in Europe. Barsook has more than once expressed the opinion that Europe does not exist, that it is a fantasy <laughs> that certain people have from watching movies, but that there is no such place as Europe. And, and I keep coming back with stories from Europe, and people just shake their heads patiently and go... There he goes again. Where's he been? With his, with, he's been reading Tolkien, <laughs> and he thinks that hobbits are real. And I say, no, there really are British people. They talk like hobbits, but they're normal-sized, and no one here believes it. Um, five years from now, ten years from now, will that be true, that, that someone in the UK or that someone anywhere in the world won't be able to go to one location and find all the music of The Long Winters for sale uh, using international space currency that is like tied to some kind of international standard. I mean, this is the idea that drives nationalists crazy in both of our countries, the idea that the pound or the dollar will someday be tied to some some standard currency, um, the dreaded euro or maybe the the Danish kroner. But... Five years from now, 10 years from now, it will. it's ludicrous to imagine that you won't be able to buy that music with one touch of a button and that it will be the same standard everywhere. But, of course, it's not. iTunes UK, iTunes America somehow are different. I, when I go to the UK with my iPhone, I cannot turn it on because even though all the technology wants to work together – someone has figured out that they can charge me $15 an hour or $15 a minute to use the map program when I'm in Edinburgh. And so I just don't turn or, you know, I keep the, I keep it on airport mode because it's a wifi device. I use it as a computer, but I can't use it as a phone. And when you, when you think back five years ago, seven years ago, when you had, uh, and this may still be true. I don't know. I haven't, I haven't, I haven't been to the continent in a little bit, but you know, you buy a phone in the Netherlands and you cross over into Belgium and all of a sudden you're, you're paying $25 a minute. And it's like, they had to work hard to achieve that. They could have just, you know, they, they could have just let the, let the phone service kind of bleed over into the next country. No, they, 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 <laughs> they pointed the transformers away, or they, they pointed the transmitters away from one another to to achieve this goal of making it impossible to communicate
0: for all of its faults over the past few years the european union has been stamping down on this and, and making it making the roaming fees fairer and just more so within europe especially you know as time goes on it is just becoming that it is just as expensive in the UK is will be in Spain.
1: Yeah, and that's how it should be. And right now I should be able to use my iPhone in England and have it be the same cost, which is to say I'm already paying an exorbitant fee to use this stupid thing. These other fees are just usurious. It does not, like for instance, one of the questions that you're asking um, can be answered this way. Every record contract that you will ever sign has a little clause on page 42 of the contract that says something to the effect of off the top. And this is after you've negotiated all the money that you're going to, you know, all the percentages of money that you're going to make from the label. They say off the top, there's a 5% breakage fee. And this is a piece of boilerplate that's in every recording contract that dates back to the time when if you sent out a thousand records, vinyl records, it was presumed that 5% of them would arrive broken. And the label didn't want to pay for this. So there's, a, there's 5% off the top, off the net. I'm sorry, off the gross. 5% off the gross that is just to account for breakage. And this survives in record contracts, not only record contracts that we're talking about CDs, but now record contracts where the majority of the, the records sold are MP3s on iTunes.
0: I guess it's in case a few bites fall out on the way
1: now, right? Well, Just yeah, but you, you, you write somebody an angry email. I mean, it, it, is, <laughs> it, it is 5% that goes back to the label. Yeah. It's basically 5% immediate profit to them for an imaginary thing, breakage, which does not exist. But if you are negotiating a record contract with a label and you say, hey, I read this thing about breakage and I know it's there and I know it's baloney and I'd like it taken out of the contract. They say, oh, no, 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 that's standard. That's standard. Uh, and because it's standard, we can't talk about it. We don't even acknowledge it's there. And there's still, there are still threads of that kind, 5% breakage threads, that run throughout our whole world, these turf battles between phone companies, these incompatibilities between software makers and computer makers that cannot survive. You know, they have to be winnowed out. It, it is like Sony is still promoting Betamax 40 years after or 30 years after it was acknowledged that nobody wanted it anymore. Um, but in, in so much of this technology, there is not, the market is so garbled. It's not clear you, you don't have that, that market Darwinin, uh, Darwinism where, where a thing makes its attempt, it fails, and it goes away. Now we have all these incompatible systems working simultaneously, and somebody's trying to make money on their blog by having pop-up ads, and somebody else is trying to make money off their blog by having hyperlinks, and somebody else is trying to make money off their blog. And, and so everywhere you go, there's no consistency and there's so much noise um, it it causes me to but I have lost i mean I was about to say it causes me to go retreat into my thick book about Napoleon, but I have lost my ability to read a thick book about Napoleon. I keep touching the paper, trying to get it to link to the to the page on Wellington and um i don't know i fear I fear for my child <laughs>
0: that she's going to live in a world of technology.
1: Well, that, 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 that we can't help it. I can, I used to say when it got too crazy, I would move to a cabin in Montana, but now I realize it has gotten too crazy and I have no interest in going to Montana. I love Wikipedia. I love map programs. I mean, these things are spectacular, but to live in a world where I mean, I, I guess I'm still so, I'm still glad that I have, that I grew up in a world where most of the things I learned, most of the things I know are things I read in an encyclopedia. So when I go to Wikipedia, I, I, I'm, I have this familiarity. I'm looking things up that I kind of have read about maybe, or I already know something about. I'm not just surfing across a, a, like a, I'm not skimming across an ice pond. i you know, I still have a the benefit of a classic education. Now, what what will it look like twenty five years from now when there, when when there's in a way no such thing? I mean, I, I honestly don't know. So, you
0: recently um, released an album called "One Christmas at a Time." Um, with mm-hmm. with John Roder- uh, with your John Roderick with Jonathan Colton, um, and you released this mainly through online channels, so for for download, and you were selling CDs and and box sets um, right through through the internet. And this is how Jonathan Colton um, he did this with his last album, um, his last studio album, Artificial Heart. And I wondered, from your perspective, what was that experience like? Has has that at all changed the way you think about? music distribution for yourself
1: Well, it has you know i'm still i still have a record contract with a record label that has been slow to maximize its understanding of digital and still sells physical cds and feels like it is in the business of selling cds uh they they're now obviously moving into the digital world but it is it was um a hard fought with them. Jonathan Colton lives almost entirely in an internet economy and he and I have been friends for many years. And he has said, uh, he's not an evangelist because he recognizes that he was kind of a one of a kind, uh, type of artist who made a certain kind of music at a certain moment in the internet's history. And he became ubiquitous. Uh, and that, turned into a career for him. It's not a thing he recommends to other people, but he does have some interesting sort of philosophical cornerstones. And one of them is that when you release an album, the first 1,000 people to buy that album who buy it the day it comes out, those 1,000 people are your true fans and they will pay $50 for that album. They will pay $100 for that album because they are they are buying it both to hear the music but also to support you because they are your they are your most ardent supporters. And so if you sell them that if you sell that first 1000 people your album for $10 you have made $10,000 that day and you have fulfilled the very most basic performance of that relationship. Like they go, I'm your biggest fan. I want to buy your record. And you go $10 and they go, Oh, okay. $10. Great. I would have paid a hundred and you say $10 and they buy it. And then you continue to say $10 to everybody that walks up to buy that record, including Six months later, the you know the casual perfunctory fan that just heard about you somewhere and is like, "Oh yeah, I got, I'll buy that record, ten dollars." And Jonathan Colton feels like that is a terrible model, and he says that first one thousand people, you should sell them that CD, you should sign it, and you should give them a certificate, and you should sell it to them for fifty dollars, and it's not that you are. It's not that you are exploiting them because they want to pay $50 to get that certificate and that signed CD and that that facsimile of a handshake and a look in the eye where they say, I'm your biggest fan. And you go, hello, my fan. Let me give you this thing and I'm going to charge you a little more. But we both know that that is because I am a working musician and you are my fan. This is what this is what happens on the Internet. This is the principle of of Kickstarter or of message boards where the artist comes out from behind the screen and says, hello, I am personally replying to your tweet. I am personally offering you this CD, which I have touched with my hands. And so that first thousand people becomes $50,000 instead of $10,000. And that can be the, that amount of money can be the difference between like that can be your whole recording and promotion budget taken care of right there. Well, in contrast, my record label or any record label looks at that first day and they say, we need, to, we need as many people to buy this record as we can possibly get on the first day because that's how we prove to people it's a popular record. And the only way we're going to sell a bunch of these is if we, make, if, we, if we make it very clear that this record is super popular. So record labels say, let's sell the record for $5 that first day because we want to get as many of the cows out there as we can to come into the tent and sign up for this thing so we can point to it and say, we sold 5,000 records that first day and maybe we sold them for $5 each, but it's the number that matters. Well, the label does not have an interest in caring for those first thousand fans, giving them anything special. The label wants to just herd them together with all of the, I mean, what the label wants is for those people to go tell their friends. That's what the label wants. And for their friends to tell their friends and so these are these are fundamentally different ideas of that of how you treat that first 1000 people and you know how you treat the 25000 people that come after them there are a lot of different philosophies but colton's colton's approach to his first 1000 fans is what intrigues me and in his version of the world he says those fans belong to you they're they're not your record labels They don't belong to anybody else. They are people who are yours and you shouldn't share that money with anybody. You shouldn't, you should, you, you and that first thousand people should live together in a small room where you, you know, where you pet one another's hair and to herd them together is to, I guess, insult them or to devalue the, the aspect of making things that That still has a modicum of love in it. So this Christmas album we made with those one thousand fans in mind, you know, Jonathan Colton and me making a Christmas record. We did not really intend that it shoot up the charts, if you know what I'm saying. Yeah, Uh, it was meant as a as a talismanic gift. And we understood that if we sold signed versions of it if we put out a box set, if we sold it with a CD, that it would intrigue these thousand people and that it would be self-sustaining and profitable without being without being a thing that we were trying to make half a million dollars off of. You know, we made it for three thousand dollars if the whole thing all together made thirty thousand dollars and we split it both ways it would be just a high five like that was fun high five but really what it is is it's a it's it's kind of a it's a lesson to me or it's a master class to me and so i you know i will go back to my record label with that experience in mind and i'll say let's talk about this like let's talk about what the that well, let's talk about the fact that the internet offers us the opportunity to invite that one thousand people into our homes without literally having them in our homes, and I'll be very interested to see what my label says, what their response is.
0: Yeah, I think it it definitely works for the reasons that you said. I have my box right here. Um, oh, you do. It's beautiful, isn't it? It is, it's, and I, I like the um, the wax stamp seal on the on the little card
1: inside for well, that was Right a now nice now what, what what does that fulfill? Nothing, but I
0: liked it. I opened it. I was like, "Oh, that's nice." <laughs> and you know, those were individually stamped
1: by Jonathan Colton's wife Christine. That makes it that, all the more sweeter to know that. Yeah, and it's a so it's yeah, it's a wax seal like Henry VIII might have put on a on a uh, parchment. And it's on a card, right? Mm-hmm. It's a wax seal on a card. And yet it's a beautiful thing. And and it, you could not sell it on its own. It is just a, it, it's a talisman. So much, so much, as we move, as we move deeper and deeper into the, this uh, this technology vortex, little things like that. It's why all these artisanal, hand soap stores are popping up everywhere people are 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 hungry for the sense of things being made for them or the the feeling that someone had their hands on a thing i don't know when i first went on the internet i was still being coached by people in the music business other artists and and people who had come before they would, they would say, listen, you don't want to reply to people on message boards. You don't want to be on, you don't want to be visibly on those places because you need to cultivate an air of mystery. You need to, there needs to be a clear delineation between artist and fan. If you're on there arguing about guitar tone with people, it's going, it, it demystifies it too far. And that was the conventional wisdom in 2003 among artists. Well, now I'm on Twitter every day. If people want to send me a thing that says, your song, Scent of Lime, saved my life. More more times than not, I will say, thanks a lot. XOXO, fave, send. And does it demystify me? Maybe. We're all a little demystified now. But uh, but I don't feel like it. I don't feel in any way it it, it cheapens the fan artist relationship. I, I I feel like it somewhat enhances it. I agree with that.
0: So you've recently um, you've been on on a tour with Jonathan Colton, um, and you've you've done other tours with him um, in the past. And you've yeah, as you said this the idea of of um, the online world of music and and the world that jonathan colton and now yourself is in probably i'm going to assume has a very different fan base to the one that you had when you were playing long winter shows um have the crowds changed how have they changed for you
1: well there are there are huge i mean a, a, a large proportion i think still of the long winter's fan base is not uh is not an internet savvy group. Even they, they do not represent the mavens of social networking. The long Winter's fan base was, you know, established in the years between 2002 and 2006 as a group of people who were the old fashioned record store employees and hipster music snobs and, you know, indie rock culture people. Um, the internet culture certainly has a corner of those people. And, and um, a lot of them have made the transition, but internet culture is, is a, is a separate animal. And I hear from people all the time who are long winners fans who are waiting for the waiting for the, the email newsletter to tell them what we're doing next. And I say, Hey, there's a faster way to do that. You can follow me on Twitter. And they, respond somewhat predictably like, Oh, Twitter, really? Isn't that a place where people take pictures of their, their sandwich? Uh, isn't that a place where people just, uh, I mean, they don't understand what Twitter is uh, and Facebook is probably as far as they've gotten. So somebody sent me a, somebody sent me a, a tweet the other day. They were in some hotel in Australia in sitting in the hotel bar in some town in Australia that's out in the bush. And the bartender was playing the long winter's record pretend to fall. And this person's sitting in the lobby and they tweet me and they say, we're listening to pretend to fall in this hotel bar. And it's hilarious because we're literally at the end of the earth. And in tweeting back and forth forth with this person, the bartender had discovered this record through record buyer channels. He had no idea that I was, he had no idea who I was at all, let alone that I was accessible on the internet. It wouldn't have occurred to him. You know, he was consuming music and was not interested in having a, uh, in being pen pals with the person that wrote the songs, you know? And so unlike, Jonathan Colton there is no one who is a fan of Jonathan Colton who does not have the internet you know (laughs) that's the only way you would discover that music Um, and my fans are this other this uh, are made up of these other creatures but now that I'm on the internet and I'm introduced to this new this new community of people I mean routinely people come up to me at Jonathan Colton shows and say, I mean, and I'm talking about 35 year olds who say, "This was my first music concert, and I really enjoyed it." And I always have to lean in a little closer and go, "Your first music concert of uh, ever?" And they go, they're very excited, and they say, "Yes, I have never been out at night." to see a music band and I really liked it Hmm. and I go, and this is, this is, this happens nightly. And I think to myself, how is there a downside to that? First of all, welcome, you know, welcome to the world. Hello, my (laughs) friend. Yes. An outside music concert in the out of doors. Like you have detached yourself from your Aaron chair and you are in a room with other people. You know, and a lot of these people have social anxiety disorder or whatever, but my God, they came Mm -hmm. and they had a beer and they watched the show. That's wonderful.
0: Congratulations.
1: (laughs) Yeah. But as far as like understanding how I fit into that um, and, and whether or not that is an audience that I'm just seeing because I'm on tour with Colton, who is the, you know, in some ways the godfather of that world and whether those people will, will follow me through my musical adventures. I have no way of knowing. Um, I think a lot of, uh, I think initially my music is maybe too figurative. There is no literal, there, in, there is no protagonist even there are just some, there are a lot of ambiguous, set pieces about people who seem to not be able to have their love affair go very smoothly. And, um, you know, does that appeal to someone who spends all day creating levels of World of Warcraft? I, I don't know.
0: I think that, I mean, you know, um, Jonathan Colton and Paul and Storm, um, they they are, like, they they make that... For- type of lyrical music that you've explained but i think that it's not so much necessarily the music i mean i'm, I'm talking from my own um, thoughts and experiences but i don't know if it's necessarily so much the music itself but the way in which you choose to interact with people and the way that you talk about your music i found out about the long winter's music um after i started listening to roderick on the line Mm-hmm. Um, and mm-hmm. that's that's how I gained introduction to your music, and it's been, um, and uh, some of your albums, especially when I pretend to fall, have been in my highest play count for the year. Um, and, and I started listening in August. Like I'm a I'm a I'm a big fan of the long winters music now. Bravo. And and, and that's and that's because I that this is the way that I've come to find out about you, um, and and I think that it's. For me, anyway, for it's it's about that. It's the way you know you you did the the Christmas album and the way that you chose to distribute that, and it's maybe less about the. It's less about what the the music's about, but if the music is good and you embrace the community, I think that's what what people like.
1: Yeah, and I, I, for for my part, you know, I was a. I was called a nerd all the way through school, but it was the old fashioned definition of being a nerd, which is to say that I, I used big words. I tried to read the newspaper every day and I preferred talking to adults rather than other kids. And there was no, you know, that was what a nerd was. Um, um, this version, this definition of nerd as being somebody who likes comic books um, is, a, in my experience, a fairly new definition. Because when I was a kid, of course, normal people liked comic books. Other kids liked comic books. Like, li- liking Batman did not make you a nerd. It made you a kid. Um, and I understand that liking Batman as an adult is one of the ways in which nerds sort of self-identify as a as a culture group but i definitely feel like in, instinctively i am a member of this category of people who are who are interested to the point of consumption with i mean and by and by consumption i mean they are consumed with esoterica they are you know they are fascinated and in, in a way, eternally childlike, with um, with the with the realm of ideas, they are not content to uh, to take the world as it is spoon fed by the dominant culture. Like these are things I feel an uh, that I felt an uh, an affinity with early internet pioneers and and the world of um, the the now like ascendant world of technology nerds. So it was easy for me to embrace that world and, and, and try and figure it out because it's another, it's another world of people, you know, it's a, and it's a world of people that the internet has given a voice to that maybe were the people who were sitting at the back of the room or, or hugging the wall at a dance (laughs) or otherwise, you know, anxious about about all the the crazy uh social cues that go into just walking up to somebody on the street and saying hello so the internet you know the internet has emboldened people who who would have been quiet otherwise and generally those people have interesting things to say interesting observations so it feels like that is a um that is a a, a thing that i that I feel very, very naturally close to the, the part of nerd culture that is harder for me to feel a part of is the, is the confusion, the confusion that exists around the idea that liking something is not the same as creating it or owning it. And uh, I think a lot of nerd culture and internet culture is based around collecting and disseminating the work that you like and curating a kind of feed or online personality based on, like, I like this, 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 and this, and therefore that is who I am. Yeah. And my liking of these things entitles me to a feeling of proprietorship over them. I like Jonathan Colton, therefore Jonathan Colton must listen to me When I email him and tell him what I think about his new record or um, my appreciation of Jonathan Colton is a form of being a part of the Jonathan Colton larger Internet project. And neither of those things are true. Like Jonathan Colton is making his music. The fact that you like him does not mean that you own him or that you are part of his um, brand, you know.
0: There's a sense of entitlement to things on the internet, which is a problem.
1: It is. And I mean, I used to love Judas Priest when I was a a kid, but it never occurred to me to send a letter to Rob Rob Halford. And if he had replied to it, I don't think I would have felt any – if I had written it and he had replied to it, I don't think I would have felt that I had any more say in – judas priest or that my connection to them meant anything to them you know um and that uh, so that's a thing i i like to whenever i have encounters with people online i always like to say if you have a creative impulse by all means my god make something don't confine your creative impulse to just appreciating things and if and if it is if you just appreciate things that is a That is a long and honorable practice, but don't conflate that with making things because they're different you know they're different expressions, and that they're different and they are not equivalent honestly um, so so my exposure to to the the internet world is you know and, and you will know this i'm sure from listening to Roderick on the line, there are a lot of Things that I navigate as I go through as I go through this modern life, where I feel like okay, I, I feel like we are we're approaching a border here. Like there is a line here that needs to be drawn, and and certain things are on one side and certain things are on the other. And it's just a it's just, it it is a it they're, they're largely just cognitive borders. But if you don't make a distinction between curating and creating then uh something real is lost a playlist is not an album you know exactly um, so but we'll see that definition i mean uh, uh, that th- that uh that definition may be archaic and 50 years from now a playlist may be an album the dj's are the ones getting paid at the big festivals it's not the it's not the sad bastard guitar strummers
0: before before I let you go, I have to talk about Roderick on the line. So you, you mentioned it there. It's a it's a show that you, you that you record with Merlin Mann. It's a a weekly show where the two of you sit down and you talk and whatever happens happens. And there are overarching um, themes and 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 such throughout the show. Did you know what you were letting yourself in for when when you f- recorded the first episode? <laughs>
1: Well, you know, he and I have been calling each other on the phone and yelling at each other about the Beatles for, uh, for 10 years. And he, because Merlin Mann is a polymath and, and also, um, a hyperactive, he routinely would say, I'm going to start recording these conversations. And I would say, whatever. And then we would yell at each other about the Beatles and about Hitler. And then, he would call me or I would call him a month later and we would do the same. And he would say, one of these days I'm going to start recording these. And then one day he did and put them on the internet. And it, you know, it felt very natural to do because he was already podcasting from several different platforms. Um, and I was surprised at how, I was surprised at how many people were not just interested in like, eavesdropping on the conversation but very much engaged with the conversation and engaged with the the multiplicity of topics and the kind of loosely interconnected uh streams of thought um and and that impressed me it impressed me that that um because because I don't I don't think there I don't think anybody including both Merlin and myself I don't think anybody understands everything we say. There's a lot of stuff that he says that uh, that I, that I only I only get like 15 seconds later where I go oh oh that was a really good joke but we're gone we're on to something else we're talking about parents now. He <laughs> talks uh, so fast that he talks so fast and he and he is so and he's so quick you know yeah. and my stories my stories are. Uh, they They lumber along, and they always have some moral component that you get the sense that Merlin is only half listening to the moral aspect of the uh, the moral quote <laughs> but then he gets it then it then it, then it then the full force of it lands on him and and you hear him go, "Oh, wow, you know yes, th- is this what you 're saying So the fact that other people are interested in that is wonderful. And, and what it's done is it has made me feel, it has relieved me of 20 years of feeling like I was, I was, um, imperfectly explained. Like I would do interviews for newspapers and radio shows and they would edit them and I would read the final result and I would go, ah, no, not really. That's, that doesn't get it. You did not get it. You edited out the good part, or you you put in a you don't know how semicolons work or or you put in you put quotes around the wrong word, but with this podcast it's it's really like Merlin and myself in our own voices, and if you listen to enough of them, you can't help but have the real picture whatever it is i'm whatever it is I'm here on earth to do or whatever whatever. Knowledge I am accumulating, like this is an authentic reproduction of it. Uh, And so with that, I couldn't be more satisfied with it. It is a thing maybe that I, it's the thing I am maybe proudest of. Because it's so simple, but it's 100% unaffected. And uh, the fact that people like it, I think, just means that there uh, there are more like-minded people in the world than I than I maybe gave credit to.
0: I mean, I, I listen to a lot of shows and and record a bunch of shows myself, and it's easily one of my favorites. But I've Roderick on the line. I just feel that as well. But for somebody who's I don't I don't say this about any other show because it's not really applicable to any other podcast that I've ever heard, but. I feel if you want to start listening, you have to start at episode one because you will not understand what super train is, what pump chili is. And, and it's important because you may find these jokes funny. If you hear them, you know, references to pump chili and, and blow up dolls might be funny, but you need to understand that these are jokes that have run for months in some cases now. And, and, and nobody would, un- I don't think anyone would understand super train. Um, Without hearing you know the, the overarching theme of supertrain
1: well and supertrain it was an idea that that appealed to so many people immediately uh, in a way that i wasn't prepared for, and Supertrain has taken off in other people's imaginations, yeah. so that it exists as a far more fleshed out reality than I can even lay credit to uh, people people feel like they know supertrain and they know it's coming and they are looking forward to it. We will. Do you know
0: do you know where the stickers are coming from?
1: I have no idea. The 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 first the first stickers which are which are you know quotes around the idea of supertrain. Um largely largely like Merlin's reaction to supertrain like well you better you better Better keep a small backpack. <laughs> um, with the super train hashtag. They started appearing originally in Brooklyn and people would send me pictures of them and say, I was in a bar in Brooklyn and and this was in the bathroom. And I thought, that's weird.
0: <laughs> Hang <And> on. Then, <laughs> Something strange is happening.
1: Yeah. And then people started sending me pictures of them from all over Iowa City and Mexico City and all across Europe and in every – in every city in the country, I have no idea who is producing them, how they're making this uniform sticker that goes all over. And more importantly, when I got done with the Christmas show that Jonathan Colton and I played in Brooklyn, there was one in my guitar case, and I don't know how it arrived there. <laughs> That's just weird. <laughs> yeah, and so so the people the the fr- I mean I have friends in a couple of different cities now who have stopped sending me pictures and have started sending me concerned text messages like, are you running a cult? Is this, am I supposed to be, I'm your friend, am I supposed to be taking, uh, be, be understanding the importance of these quotes in a way that I'm not? You know, there's a, there's a, I've gotten a couple of very concerned texts from a friend like, is this a, is this a thing that you're doing on purpose to, to freak me out? And I'm like, I have nothing to do with it. I'm in Seattle. I'm not, if I was, if, if I were making those super train stickers, I would be selling them for $5 each and I'd be making money as it is. It's just, it's just the weirdness of the world now.
0: They are very cool. I, I find the most interesting thing is you ask and nobody will tell you where, where they come
1: from. No, I say it all the time. Whenever somebody tweets me, I'm like, who's doing this? And it's just, <laughs> it's just nothing. It's silence. And I think that is in keeping with the super trained philosophy. They sound like somebody who waits until the last possible minute to board a plane. They sound like somebody who checks their, checks their six. And I, can, I, I have only the highest esteem for that.
0: I guess they just keep on moving, right They keep on moving,
1: and they slap super strain stickers everywhere they go,
0: and they're getting out of the way <laughs> Mr. Roderick, thank you very, very much for um being with me on this episode. It's been an absolute pleasure and an honor to talk to you, and uh, I hope we can do it again sometime.
1: It's been my pleasure, please have me on any time and if you want if you want to have me on with another guest, I don't know if you ever do that um I would uh, – I'd, I'd love to talk to you again. This is, all, this is all very interesting stuff and you interrupt me a lot less frequently than Merlin does. <laughs>
0: I think uh, – Merlin has been interrupting me during this. but I've been kind of – he's following you around. Yeah. Um, why don't you tell people where, where they can find you? Like, where is a, a good place to, to keep up with John Roderick?
1: Well, Roderick on the Line is available on iTunes. Uh, and it is a podcast called Roderick on the Line. It is under the philosophy section. Obviously. I am at John Roderick on Twitter. And uh my band is The Long Winters, and you can find us, although you can apparently not get our most recent album in the UK, <laughs> I'm gonna go right now and yell at some people and see if I can rectify that.
0: I tried um to buy it again while we were recording to make sure that my facts were correct and It tells me that due to um, geographical restrictions or international restrictions, it must be removed from my can't to continue,
1: is what it told me. Oh, that infuriates me. So there you go. All right. Well, just be – wherever you are in the world, just be prepared for – to cover your ears as I yell at my record label. (laughs) because we will all hear it.
0: And, uh, of course, as always, you can follow me online. I am imike, I-M-Y-K-E on Twitter and and, and places like that if you want to keep in touch. And I want to thank you all for listening to this week's episode, this week's very special episode of Command Space. And until next time, bye-bye.